Good morning, everyone. Just going to come down here and turn these little monitors on. Uh, there they are. They came back on. That's helpful. It's good to see you all this morning. Thank you so much for your appreciation uh, early in service. I certainly appreciate all of you uh, just sitting here this morning, uh, really appreciating just uh, the number of volunteers that it takes to get to this place on a Sunday morning uh, throughout the week. People volunteering to come in and uh, tidy up and, and clean pews, people willing to come in and practice for the music ministry, choir, uh, to pull all the technical elements together, the folks that are helping out in the back. Uh, there's just so many individuals that contribute every single week in ministries to our children and youth uh, and, and adults in just so many ways. Uh, we are in this together, and uh, I'm thrilled to be able to do this together with you. So thank you for your appreciation today. I had the unique opportunity when I was just starting out in ministry in the southern end of Lancaster County in the town of Quarryville, which many of you are familiar with. I had the unique opportunity my very first year to coach football against the high school that I had graduated from. And so you have to think about this. All growing up, I had grown up in, in the opposite side of, I guess that is uh, the buck, the opposite side of the buck, which is Penn Manor School District. So every single season, the first game of the year was against Solanco. And there is nothing that any, whether you're a soccer player whether you're a tennis player or a football player, whatever it might be, there is nothing that you want any more in the first game of the season than to win. You want to start out with the win. So every single year growing up, it was always, we got to beat Solanco. We have to beat Solanco. And, and, and we just, everything was about beating Solanco. So you could imagine that my very first year of ministry, serving as a youth pastor at Wesley, that first game of my first, my second year of coaching full-time, I had coached for a season up in Scranton, my second year of coaching full-time, it was really unusual and really awkward to be wearing black and gold on Friday night and looking across the field, across the field, at coaches, my coaches, who coached me, who I knew what they were thinking, and I knew what they were telling their team all week about us, and now here we were playing them. And I remember that awkward feeling at the end of the game, I, I believe we lost, we lost a lot early on in my coaching career. <laughs> I remember that awkward feeling walking across the field and shaking the hands of my high school coaches. <laughs> And saying, good game. And, and having that awkward moment where, what do I call this person now? I don't know. Like, do I call him Mr.? Uh, or do I call him Coach? Or do I call him by their first name? And being corrected multiple times because I was out of high school and out of college now. That I could call him by their first name. Just understanding that my priorities, my identification as a Penn Manor Comet had changed. I was no longer wearing the blue and gold. I was no longer a Penn Manor Comet. The priority of my identification in terms of football coaching and sports was now black and gold, Solanco. And you know, that idea 
is an idea that Paul is going to pull from as we continue in our study of the book of Philippians, this letter that he is writing to the people of Philippi. As Roman citizens, many of them former Roman soldiers, retired Roman soldiers, there was an allegiance, a priority of citizenship that was embedded in them. That was a very much a part of their everyday life and their identity. And part of the challenge that Paul had when writing to these people was to help them to see that now, as followers of Christ, as believers of Jesus, the priority of their citizenship was to be reoriented and redirected. And we're going to see that this morning as we open the text in Philippians chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, and the beginning of chapter 2. And there's three questions that we want to explore or investigate together this morning as we open the text. The first is this, how can living out a right priority of citizenship help us to stand firm for the faith of the gospel, as we'll see Paul talk about Second question, as Paul observes the community of faith from afar, remember, he is imprisoned under house arrest in Rome. He's making observations as he's hearing them uh, from Epaphroditus who has come to give report. As he's making observations of the community of faith from afar, what quality is he hoping to see or hear that will complete his joy? There is a quality that Paul desires to be present in every Christian community, and he desires for it to be present in Philippi as well. And then finally, as we've been called together as a diverse community of believers, in what practical ways can we make unity a reality in our faith community? I'm going to ask that you would stand today as we read the text. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, we're going to be reading verses 27 through chapter 2, verse 4. And if you would stand for a prayer and the reading of the text, let's pray first. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its powerful nature. In many places throughout your word, you tell us that this word is living, active, powerful, and useful to us. Useful in every aspect of our lives. And we know that right now, there is something supernatural that goes on during this part of our time together. Your spirit is at work. He is moving within those who have gathered here in the building and those who are with us online. And he will apply to each and every person exactly what we need. Lord, we pray that we would take your words, that they would move our hearts and minds, that you would use them to form us into the image of your son, Jesus, that we might leave this place shining brighter with a mindset to be more effective in the lives of those you place in our pathways this week. Lord, help this text to grow our love for you and our love for others today. In Jesus' name, amen. And so we'll read the text and then we can be seated. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through chapter 2, verse 4. This is Paul writing to the church of Philippi. He says this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, 
striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Thank you. You may be seated. So the first question that we want to investigate and explore together today is, how can living out a right priority of citizenship help us stand firm for the faith of the gospel? Paul's conduct while he was in prison was a pure example for us, the church, of what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel. It was Paul's desire that the people of Philippi and all believers who would follow would live in the manner that he was living. And as we reflect on this reality, it's important that we remind ourselves of the population that made up the Macedonian town of Philippi. Remember, we said many of these inhabitants were retired soldiers of Rome. The attitude in Philippi was a strong attitude of nationalistic pride and allegiance to Rome. Very strong. Instead of the priority of the gospel, the conduct of the people who lived in Philippi would have been first informed and influenced by their citizenship as Romans, especially as Roman soldiers. But for those who are in Christ, Paul is exhorting us that there is a new priority, a new paradigm for our conduct. If we were actually to be reading uh, this text in the original languages, verse 27 reads as follows in the Greek. It says this, live as citizens Worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is there. Live as citizens. Worthy of the gospel of Christ. So rather than living as citizens and soldiers worthy of Rome. Loyal to Caesar their king. Paul is calling the church towards something that is powerfully. Powerfully countercultural. It's a redirection of our priorities, a reorientation of our allegiance, of our citizenship for the community of faith and the individuals who are a part of it. Our priority is now our identification with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul is compelling us to live a life, to have conduct that is worthy of this gospel, that the patterns and the, the things that are a part of this gospel would inform the patterns and attitudes and behaviors of our lives as we seek to live rightly in this world. 
This is, as Paul notes in verse 27, one way that the church can stand firm together in one spirit with one mind contending side by side for the faith of the gospel. Friends, when we have agreed to prioritize our heavenly citizenship first and have it through the gospel inform the way that we live in this world, then we begin to shine and have effect as ambassadors of Jesus in the places that he's planted us in. Paul's speaking to many who were soldiers, formerly soldiers, retired soldiers. He's riffing in his language here. He's riffing off of military language. Many of these men and women, many had stood firm together. They had contended in military conflict side by side for the sake of Rome and the advancement of Caesar's empire. Now. Paul was calling them to contend side by side for something very different. The sake of the gospel, the advancement of the kingdom of God. And isn't it amazing that Paul isn't just calling them to this. He's actually demonstrating it by living it himself. While imprisoned, he is showing the people how to live rightly In this manner, he's not intimidated by his opponents. If you remember last week, rather than being intimidated by his opponents, the Praetorian Guard, everyone who was assigned to keep watch over him and with him, they were hearing and seeing daily the gospel lived out in Paul's life. He doesn't want the church to be intimidated either. He doesn't want the church in Philippi or the church today to be overwhelmed by the presence of Rome. He doesn't want them to be loyal to Caesar and his empire alone. This word intimidation that Paul is using, it was actually used uh, in military terminology for the horses uh, that would have been part of the military. And any of you in here ride horse? Some of you maybe have ridden a horse before. I hope this hadn't happened to you, but if you've ever been on a horse before, if you're riding the horse and the horse comes up to an obstacle, whether it's a water or whether it's uh, maybe a tree that's fallen down in the path and it's uncomfortable with what it's approaching, what does the horse typically do? What does it do? It pulls up, right? That is the exact word that Paul is using here and how it was used in that day, in Paul's day and age, with military horses, the idea of apprehensiveness, a little bit unsure about what's next, what's in front of us, fear, anxiety, all a part of that. For those who desire to live as kingdom citizens today, friends, there is no need for us to fear, to have anxiety or to be apprehensive. For those of us who know Jesus, we have experienced the perfect love of Jesus. Friends, that love casts out all fear. For those of us who know Jesus, Jesus has reconciled us to God. He's our perfect peace. And that should cast out our anxiety. And Jesus, he's given us a clear call, a direction for our lives. He's given us purpose, a purpose to love God. And to love others. 
while living and sharing the gospel. And friends, this purpose should move us away from apprehensiveness. We have clear direction. Rather than being intimidated by opponents, Paul says in verse 28 what? He says that their intimidation is a sign of their destruction, but of our salvation, which is of God. A joyless, lifeless world system that is dead in its trespasses and sins will always try to steal, kill, and destroy the life and joy of those who are in Christ. When Brighton was young, Brighton's our oldest for those of you that don't know. When he was young, uh, occasionally he would come with me when I would go meet with one of my mentors at a local cafe and we would do Bible study together and I figure I could coax him with a chocolate milk or a Pepsi and he would come and sit down and hear us go through the Bible together and I knew the Spirit would work through that. And I'll never forget, one day we were at the cafe and we were just talking. Typically we were in the Gospel of John and my mentor looked at Brighton and Brighton was just about that age where he was getting ready to go into middle school. And he said, young man, he said, you have something inside of you that many people in this world do not have. He said, you have a light, you have a joy, and you have a hope, and it's because of Jesus. And many people in this world that are lost, in fact, all people in this world that are lost, do not share that same light, that same hope, and that same joy. He said, you're going into school, you're going into middle school. He said, you're getting older, you're going to have more pressures in your life. And he said, the number one obstacle that you're going to face in your life is people wanting to steal what you have inside. They're going to want to steal your hope. They're going to want to steal your joy. They're going to want to steal your light. Don't let them do it. Don't let them do it. And friends, this is the world we live in. We can turn on our TVs. We can open up our newspapers. I don't recommend any of that, but <laughs> if you want to do it, you can do it. You can watch a national news. Na no, don't do it. Don't do it. Joyless. Lifeless. Hopeless. Doom scrolling. Don't do it. On social media, don't do it. We just don't need to. Friends, this is in our world because much of our world lives without the light and hope and joy of Jesus Christ. We have it. It's embedded in us. And much of what we experience in this world is desperately trying to take it away. Because it's not there for them. This sort of intimidation, friends, it's always meant to disrupt, to dissolve, to disparage the work of God. And Paul wants the church to see, to identify through a different lens. To see these forms and systems of intimidation as evidence that God is at work. And the church is reordering and reprioritizing and reorient or sorry redirecting its conduct around the gospel of Jesus instead of the gospel of Caesar and believe me Caesar has a gospel he does pastor tom shared a few weeks ago from the pulpit thank you one of the things that stuck with me from his message the government won't 
fix it. Caesar has a gospel, friends. He believes he has good news. The government system that we live in, that we live under, believes it has news better than this news. I got news for you. It's not. The gospel of Jesus is the most life-giving, powerful, hopeful, joy-filling news that we could ever hear, live, or experience. Amen? Amen. Jesus prepared us rightly, didn't he? I mean, he said, in this world, you will have what? Trouble. Is there trouble out there? Yeah. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Not I will overcome the world. I what? Have overcome the world. As kingdom citizens, church, we not only experience new birth that is full of life, but we also experience a new birth that ironically calls us to daily death. Dying to ourselves and identifying with Jesus in our suffering. We're going to suffer. It's going to be hard. As a coach I work under so often says, that's part of it. It's part of it. And Paul's further going to explore this in verses 29 and 30. Look at what he says. For it has been granted to you, not only that you believe in Christ, but also what? That you suffer for him. Since you are encountering the same conflict you saw me face and now hear that I am facing. So friends, we are full of belief, but we are also to live prepared to suffer. Paul's emphasis here is that we as a church would find our sufferings as a privilege, even actually as a testimony to God's grace. And isn't it interesting? I don't know how this works. This is one of those questions that you'll ask me and I'll say, I just don't know. And one day in heaven, I'm going to find out. But it's in the scriptures and I'm not quite sure. But in some supernatural way, beyond our understanding, even the author and perfecter and pioneer of our faith, Jesus, was perfected through his sufferings. Look at that text from Hebrews. For it was fitting for him, for whom and through whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory to make the pioneer of their salvation, what? Perfect through suffering. Wow. To orient and prioritize our lives in such a way that our heavenly citizenship comes first will no doubt lead to discomfort and suffering in this world. Friends, it's gonna come. Maybe some of us are already living it today. Maybe we lived it this week. And Paul's encouraging us, church, to demonstrate our solidarity and our unity by embracing and living full of joy, full of hope, full of life, within that discomfort, within that suffering, rather than fighting against it and complaining about it and whining about it. And we talked about this week, last week, arguing over it or just generally living miserably because of it. I had a friend in ministry I worked with for many years. He called 
people that lived miserably joy suckers. He said, did you ever get around a joy sucker? They're like a vampire, man. They just suck it right out of you. <laughs> I had joy, and then I went and spent five minutes with that person. <laughs> don't anymore. We don't have to live that way. We don't have to live that way. Never a reason to be hopeless. Never a reason to be joyless in Jesus. Never. This kind of living, friends, it clearly demonstrates that our lives have been transformed and changed by the power of God at work within us. Our circumstances aren't dictating or determining our postures and behaviors and attitudes in this world. Something greater, something larger, a more compelling vision of what life could look like has a hold of us. His name is Jesus. But as adversity and suffering and grief come upon the church, there is inevitably going to be some that are fear-filled, some that are anxious, some that are apprehensive, and, and we've watched this, even some that will fall away. And so how can we shine and how can we walk together as a community of faith in steadfast unity when we face such adversity? That leads us to the second question. Paul's observing the community of faith from afar. What is the quality that he's hoping to see or hear about that will complete his joy? And we know, friends, that work in this world is a force. There is a person whose name is Satan who is consistently threatening to tear apart, to divide, to put asunder even the most steadfast and united communities of faith. And the brighter we shine and the more effective we are, the greater the risk, the more aware we must remain. For one scholar has noted this, and this is a very interesting observation. He said, quote, wasps are attracted to the ripest of fruit. End quote. Did you ever see that? Anybody have an apple tree right now? We got some good apple cider this week. Thank you, Felthons. Really good. But if you ever get around a fruit tree, apples, peaches, the bees don't want the fruit that's not ripe. They want the ripest fruit. Is there any tool more effective at dividing and disrupting the church than the tool of division and discomfort today. And so Paul continues in his encouragement as the church is conducting itself according to the gospel and is facing all of the suffering that comes with reprioritizing their citizenship as kingdom citizens first. He wants us to keep these principles in focus. Look at chapter two, first two verses again. He says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the spirit, any affection or mercy. If any of these realities exist in your community, then let my joy be full by letting me see that you are unified in mind, in love, in spirit, and in purpose. Wow. If any of the qualities or attributes in verse 1 are existing as you suffer for the sake of Christ together, as I am also suffering, then complete my joy by showing these qualities at work in your community 
while you suffer and walk through adversity together. Not just while everything's going well. It's not all going well for Paul and he's living these things out. But when the hard times come, when the difficult times come into our faith communities, we've been through some difficult times. Amen? When they come, Paul says, let my joy be complete by watching you walk through those seasons in unity. In unity. Church, we have but one mind, the mind of Christ. We have but one love to share, the love of Christ. We have but one spirit, the spirit, capital S, of Christ. And we have one purpose as given to us by Christ. Jesus encompasses the fullness of our unity in the Christian community. Church, if you want to know what real unity looks like in Christian community, this is it. This is it. And we do well as a community of faith to keep in mind that as those who share Christ, it is our reminder that Jesus is the one who unites us. And that in Christ, as we share Christ together, and guess what? We get to do communion later today. That's what a wonderful way that this all came together. We have far more in common than we could ever have in difference. Yet what is the thing that gets given the most priority in the world today? The differences. That which separates and divides seems to always end up at the top of the list. Above Christ. We don't have to do that. We don't need to live that way. So how does this work? This is hard. Yes. Yes. This is hard. Some of you have shared with me about how hard this is in your own families. Where there's disagreements over politics. Where there's disagreements over social issues. Where there's disagreements over all sorts of things. It's hard to keep Jesus at the top. When we share Christ and have disagreement, we often highlight the disagreement above Christ. So Paul wants to see the community of faith working this out. And he turns now to the practical way in which we can do this. It's a question that he's going to answer, and it's really going to be a difficult one for us to apply and live out. Called together as a diverse community of believers, in what practical ways can we make unity a reality in our faith community? Wow. Embracing suffering, not seeking our own Advantage. Look at verse 3. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Now, don't forget the context here. In chapter 1, Paul has introduced us to a group of people. They were motivated by their own vanity. They were motivated by their own ambition. They were profiting off of Paul's imprisonment. They were building their own platforms for the proclamation of the gospel. 
And while Paul was rejoicing that the gospel was going forth, he was not approving of their motivations. Verse 3 is proof of his reticence towards embracing these selfish attitudes and behaviors. The message can be right, church, but the motives can be misguided. The message can be right, but the motives can be misguided. And instead of seeking ways to gain the upper hand, to find an advantage over one another, Paul's asking that we live together in humility, treating others as more important than ourselves. One commentator, while he was exploring this passage, said this. He said, quote, This is the linchpin that guarantees the success and unity of the Christian community. This verse. The implications and the applications of this verse for our corporate and our personal lives, they're enormous. And Paul says that an application of humility is to treat others as more important than ourselves. This is how the ideal of unity is achieved within the Christian community. And I wonder, how would our interactions and our conversations with others look if we lived truly as everyone we encountered on a daily basis was more important than ourselves. What would my interactions with the cashier at the grocery store look like if I truly saw and viewed them as someone who was more important than myself? What about my coworker who really, really just frustrates me? What if I went in? It's not you, Doug. Don't worry. What if, what if I went in that day, and showed him love. And just thought, man, this person, they're more important than I am. They're greater than me. Contractor, teacher, coach, administrator, barber, friend, neighbor, any person we find ourselves in a daily encounter with. How would our interactions look if we truly live with the humility that they are more important than ourselves? That's a radical, countercultural way of life. And at the end of chapter 1, in the beginning of chapter 2, Paul is calling the community of faith towards these attitudes and behaviors. And he's believing that if we live them out, they will facilitate wholeness and unity and fullness of life and peaceable living with one another. And in verses 3 and 4, he's giving us the practical prescription of how we can embed these in our communities. Friends, let me ask, how much striving would cease? How much division would end? How many arguments would we have? How many dust-ups would there be if we would all just follow the simple instructions contained here in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2? Postures of humility. Church, humility is almost as hard as unity today. The consideration that we might be wrong about something. Were you ever wrong about something? Don't say no. <laughs> Guys, especially, don't say no. My goodness. That our way might not always be the best way. That we might not have it all figured out. When we share Christ. The voices and the perspective and the thinking of others who also share Christ. 
They're invited and welcomed and encouraged at the table. We have a lot to learn from one another. That's why God draws us into community from such different and diverse places. We were created to need Christ, but we were also created to be in community and to build one another up in the faith, to need one another. And this way of thinking and living, it doesn't, it doesn't work right in the political arena, does it? It doesn't. I have children at home, young children. We watch football on Sundays. They see the commercials. It doesn't work. Dad, are those things true? No. <laughs> it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Because our country and our country's system of government is not wholly submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's not. So we have factions. We have ideological battlegrounds. We have the denigration and demonization of others in front of us right now, almost on a daily, maybe even at home, on a minute-by-minute -minute basis. Especially those who disagree with our special interest issue. And that is the struggle and the striving of this world system. Friend, it's, it's a sign that the ruler of this world system is alive. He's active. And he's working in governments and political arenas all over the world. The church must look different. We must. We can't give in to that nonsense. We can't be lured in by it. It's tempting. Sadly, we sometimes fall short. We argue. We divide. And in the church, very rarely is it over politics. Sometimes. But a lot of times in the church, it's over things like lights and music. Where the light switch is supposed to be or what color the carpet is. Ministry philosophies, priorities, styles, decorations, how we or what we're supposed to eat or drink, you name it. Over the years, churches have fought and divided over it. But friends, when the gospel takes root within our communities and life change happens, unity is possible because the spirit of Christ is alive and active within the individuals who make up our faith communities. Oh, man, when we get angry and upset with somebody or a little bit embittered about something they said or something we might think they believe or some. If we would just elevate their identification as a son or daughter of God through Jesus above any of that other stuff, that should be enough. Amen. And this is hard. Verses 3 and 4 are hard, friends. They're hard for our communities today. What if we cared more about applying what Paul instructed than feeling like we need to be right about everything? One of my mentors used to ask me that question. What's more important, to be loving or right? And I would say, great question. And then he would call me a weasel. <laughs> 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 
What if we truly valued and treated others as more important than ourselves? How might we respond when there's a difference in perspective, opinion, or even a theological difference? How might we posture ourselves towards other brothers or sisters in Christ who may worship Jesus in an entirely different denominational or cultural context than our own? Would we think that we need to change them to look and act and think and worship just like we do? Or might we, in humility, consider that they're more important than us and they have something they can teach us? I recently attended a pastor's conference. I get to do this about twice a year. Just a one night. Uh, it's close enough that I can actually go back home in the evening, which is nice. And this time up, this passage, knowing we were going through Philippians, was on my heart and on my mind. And I was traveling up, and there's going to be a, between 10 to 12 other pastors there. It's a small group, purposefully, so that we can have meaningful dialogue. And I thought, what would it look like for me to show up to this conference and to treat every other person there like they are better than me, more important than me, have a more significant ministry than I do, what would that look like? What posture might I have to take? How might I have to reorient my priorities so that I can honor, value, and dignify the other people who are here above myself? This is Paul's words there to remind the Christian community that one way that we honor people and value and dignify their humanity is to be concerned with their interests above their above our own. That doesn't mean we have to agree with them. But we can be a good listener. Can be a good listener. It's a way to demonstrate humility. It's evidence that we have indeed considered others as more important than ourselves. Look at verse 4. Each of you should be concerned, not only about your own interest, but about the interest of others as well. The implication of this is that within the community of faith is God is drawing diverse people together from different backgrounds that there would also, in our communities, be a diversity of interests. Our interests will not always be the same. But do we show a concern for the interests of others? Considering what's best for them and their interests over and above our own. Are we willing to sometimes put our own interests at a disadvantage in order to help the interest of others gain an advantage? Something that Jesus practiced. May of 2023, this coming May. It's, it's going to mark my 19th year in full-time pastoral ministry. And in those years, the Lord has given me an opportunity to see and experience a great deal of good, but also a great deal of difficulty. I've had the opportunity over those years to be part of land development and building teams, to plant local churches, to partner with other local churches that were struggling, do all these things, working with... Uh, here at CNBC through some church trauma, through COVID, wrestling through this text this week, I could pinpoint times and events in ministry that were difficult, and I could plainly see how every time division or hostility was present, there was a clear violation of these two verses. 
clear and direct in both my ministry contexts. Whenever there is division and disunity evident in the church, I would probably argue that you're going to find a violation of verses 3 and 4 in Philippians chapter 2. Because rarely, if ever, are we willing or able to be humble when we are demanding that we be right. And rarely, if ever, can we consider others more important than ourselves when we are unwilling to consider their interests as more important than our own. These are hard things, church, I know. They're hard for me. It's hard to live this stuff out. It's hard to be a listener. It's hard to love people that we disagree with. It's hard. And it's even harder in today's world. But you know, it's interesting here at CNBC, we're committed to, to being a kingdom portrait community. That means that we want to welcome and invite and encourage and support and build up and give space to believers from every nation, tribe, language and people group that God brings to our community. This is what it's going to look like in the end. And we say that. We, we, we reference that every year at our global outreach conference. But we have to live it. Every nation, tribe, language, and people group. And we're also committed to growing as a multi-generational community of believers. That means we desire to see all age demographics presented and represented in our community. That means sometimes when my kids are like, Dad, why do we sing those songs with those words that we no longer use, like thee, thou, thy, they, and all these other things? Well, hey, I, I know that that may not be their preference. No, we don't even talk like that anymore. I get it. But you know, there's a lot of people in our community of faith that those songs really, they touch their hearts. And it really means a lot to them. So we lay aside our preferences for them and we learn to sing those songs with joy because their interests are more important than our own i don't like the drums <laughs> i'm being bad <laughs> i know sometimes Drums can be a bit distracting, but you know there's a population, there's a generation of people that come into this building every Sunday that love them, and they want to hear them. It's part of the way they worship. And so we lay our desires and our preferences aside for the interest of others, and we do this in music, and we do this in ministry preferences and priorities, and we do this in community with one another, and we consider the other as better, and we give and we take, and that's how unity works when Jesus is in the center of the Christian community. It's not natural, friends. The world wants us to divide over all of these different things. Pack up in our own communities and just be with people who think, act, and maybe even look like us. I'd be careful, though. I'd be in a pretty ugly community. Wouldn't be any hair either. That'd be, be really tough. But you know what? I, I really believe that in Jesus, and I believe this is the ideal that Paul's moving towards, 
The reality is that we can be a community that endeavors to see beyond economic divides, political divides, social divides, cultural divides. An otherworldly community. This community of faith that we have here at CMVC, friends, it's supernaturally formed. We're not here by accident. Every person drawn in by the Spirit and knit together as one body, as Paul talks about in the book of Corinthians. Purposefully knit together by the Lord. And to have this kind of community, it requires that we both corporately and individually embody the principles and the qualities that Paul is drawing out in these verses. Every Sunday, I will promise you this, you will not come in and sing every song that you love. Because there will be some songs that are part of the service that maybe you don't know. But I promise there's a generation that exists that does know it. Whether it's old or new. To realize not everything has to be for us. But others are present. And they have needs and preferences and priorities as well. What a way to shine, church. What a way to be a source of joy for other believers facing adversity. That's what Paul said this would serve. He, as he's imprisoned, as he is living in hot adversity in Rome under house arrest, he says, I will be joyful when I look at your community and see these qualities at work among you. That you're not dividing up, but that you're unified with Jesus Christ as the center of your community. That will bring me joy. And you know that can happen still today, friends. The church can be a light. We can be a source of hope and encouragement and joy for people who are suffering in all different parts of the world as we live this out in our communities. As people look and say, wow, that is an unshakable community. Only because of Jesus. Only His power at work within us. Our monthly memory verse for this month actually comes from these verses. And there are verses that I know are hard for us. They're hard to live and apply. But let's say them together today. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Our team is going to come to prepare our hearts for communion today. We are actually going to sing a hymn that will really prepare us one day for our eternal home. But it's also a hymn that highlights our heavenly citizenship. And then we're going to participate in the body and the blood of Christ through communion together.